You're listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, helping people run their blood sugars one workout at a time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Diabetic Running Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Fody. Today on the show, I have Phil Graham. For those of you who don't know, Phil Graham is the author of the Diabetic Muscle and Fitness Guide. It's an incredible resource for anyone looking to get more information on diabetes and training. But before we jump into the interview with Phil, I wanted to do a quick race recap of my half marathon this past weekend. On Saturday, I did the Southeast Alabama Community Foundation Half Marathon in Dothan, Alabama. It's a race that I had been planning to do for a few weeks after a buddy of mine kind of reached out to me and said that he wanted to do it. I don't have a race on the calendar until April 28th, which is the Rock and Roll Full Marathon in Nashville. And so I kind of was like, well, let's do it. Race day was awesome. I woke up and didn't have any significant issues with blood sugar. I was kind of nervous that throughout the morning, like maybe my blood sugars are going to spike or maybe I'm going to be, you know, be struggling all morning with high blood sugars and I'm going to have to give myself a correction bolus. But so the race was this past Saturday and I was fortunate as I woke up to have incredible blood sugars. I think I woke up around 95. I slowly got ready. And after I had completely packed my bag and packed the truck and Rachel and my wife was ready to go, we both had a half of a peanut butter sandwich, which came out to be about 15 or 16 grams of carbs, of which I bolused at about 40% of my normal carb ratio, expecting to go a little bit higher than I would have wanted to after a meal, but just kind of slowly trying to bring my blood sugars up from 95, you know, 90, 95-ish to about 140, 150-ish where I wanted to start the race. The race was about 40 minutes away, and after getting there, we went ahead and checked in. I, you know, kind of did that pre-race bathroom break and then went over to the truck and kind of got all my stuff set up, put my belt on, got all four of my gels in there. So I had um, two spring long hauls, which are kind of, I think it's around 13 or 14 grams of carbohydrates per gel. And it's just an incredible gel for me because it slowly releases energy into me and it doesn't really spike my blood sugars. And it, it tends to last about 30, 45 minutes Um for me, especially in terms of energy and not letting my blood sugar drop either. So I had planned on eating two of those and then Electro Ride gel, which is actually a mixture. It's a drink mixture that comes in the same gel packet style from Spring Energy. And I had put that in my waistband as well and had planned at some point on the race, um, out on the race course, getting either a bottle of water or a cup of water and just kind of mixing that mixture in there. And it's about 20 grams of carbohydrates and it's once again, all natural. And it's been really incredible for me on my stomach and kind of helping me with the release of carbs into my bloodstream without spiking. And then, you know, that subsequent drop. And then the last gel that I had was, uh, I think a gel from Walgreens or Rite Aid, and it's just straight up glucose gel. I think it has 15 grams of straight glucose sugar. And then, of course, I had my cell phone on me to monitor decks if I needed to. And then my pump, which about 45 minutes before the race, I moved to 50% of my normal basal rate. And then right before the race, I moved it to 25% of my normal basal rate. For those of you who saw the pictures, I actually started out with my Type 1 run shirt on. But about two miles in, I, I think I thought it was going to be a little cooler that morning than it actually was. It was like nearly 60 degrees, which even for southern Alabama is, you know, pretty warm, especially at eight o'clock in the morning. And so about two miles in, I took off my type one run shirt and I was like looking around, me and my buddy were talking about it. We're trying to find a place for me to stash this thing. And so we wait till we find a house that we're passing by that's for sale. 
we memorized the address and then I went up under the driveway and like shoved it under like a, a drainage ditch that was under the driveway. And we memorized the address and then ran out. After stepping off, we immediately settled into about an 825 pace, which felt comfortable, but I was a little bit alarmed because the weekend prior I had trained at a nine minute pace for the whole run. And, you know, I kind of was talking to my buddy and we're like, well, you know, 825 feels really, really comfortable. Should we slow down? And I think ultimately we decided no, just in case the course was a little hillier than we anticipated that way. If we can maintain this 825, we'll start slowly buying ourselves some time mile after mile in the event that, you know, the later part of the course is hillier or we end up slowing down. And that was actually working out really well up until about mile seven or eight. We kind of had averaged between 825 and nine minute miles. And then my buddy, Manny, kind of slowly started working away from me. I could tell that that pace was just naturally flowing for him a little bit well. He was settling into about an 840 comfortably. And I kind of felt myself wanting to slow down to that nine-minute pace, just kind of settle in so that I don't get to mile 10 and just completely blow up. And that's what ended up happening. About, um, I think that eight-mile mark is when he started to step forward a little bit, and then I just accepted, like, Oof, I'm going to be running the rest, of the rest of this race by myself. Um, it's actually funny. At the end of him, I made I made fun of him a little bit because he's not a type one. But I, I looked at him and his wife. I'm like, you know, real cool, man, leaving the type one diabetic in the woods by himself. And he got a little, he was like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. But and I was like, no, I'm just kidding. I'm perfectly fine. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to maintain the pace that we were holding initially. Overall, fueling was going really well. My plan was to every 30 minutes have a gel. And I think it ended up coming out to be about every 35 minutes. And so that first 35-minute mark, I pulled out a long haul and I kind of ate that. After I had my first gel, I thought to myself, like, ooh, I could pull out my phone and look at my DEX data and kind of see where my blood sugars are at. But at some point, I just decided not to. And I'm not really for sure if it was I didn't want to know my number so that it wouldn't get in my head or if I was just in a rhythm and I didn't kind of want to break up my cadence by reaching into my flip belt and pulling out my phone and possibly disturbing all the other stuff that I had shoved in there. But I just never ended up looking at it. I knew that from my experience last week after doing this exact run with this exact fueling and roughly the same climate that my blood sugars was going to, my blood sugars were going to stay pretty stable. And so throughout the race, I never pulled out my Dexcom once looking back after I finished, I think I averaged between 140 and 95 and i ended up finishing and starting the race right at the same number right at 140 which was actually pretty good for me because i thought i would go low at some point during the race and i would have to react for it but i never did one of the only low points for me during the race was right about the hour and 10 minute mark because i was anticipating that next 35 40 minute period where i was going to eat another gel and my second gel i had planned on eating my electrolyte which is the substance that I could put into a water bottle or put into water and it's 20 grams of carbs. And I was going to wait until the next aid station to do that so that I could grab, you know, a cup of water and squirt that in there. And then, you know, not only drink, but get those calories and get those sugars in, but I didn't hit an aid station. So from mile four and a half to almost mile 10, there weren't any water stops. And I was so frustrated that there was aid stations at, you know, the mile and a half mark, I think at like the 2.2 mile mark and then another one at like four miles, something like that. But then we went almost five miles without any water or aid stations. And so I was so frustrated because, you know, I really wanted to eat this electrolyte and it's supposed to be mixed with water. And here I am almost at mile 10 and I still haven't seen a water stop and I haven't had the opportunity to get water. 
And I was almost cursing myself too. Like, oh, I should have just brought a handheld. You know, I, I knew that my fueling strategy was going to be this and I should have just put my fade in my own hands and brought my own water. So before I even got to that mile 10 mark and found that next aid station, I just pulled out the electrolyte and started eating it by itself, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone who's out there because it's, it's a little acidic, you know, it's meant to be diluted. And so I'm sitting here trying to get this down and I'm like starting to burp up like the acid, you know, juices that are, you know, concentrated in the, in the gel. But I'm, I, I'm glad I did it too, because I, looking back at the Dexcom data at that point, I was starting to trend a little bit lower and I really did need to get some sugars in my system. So, you know, pulling out that electrolyte, popping the top and just starting to eat it was, you know, working for me at the time. Luckily about a half a mile after I started to do that. Um, so I mean like five, six minutes later, I actually did end up seeing a water station and was able to get a cup of water, squirt that in there and then kind of put my hand over the cup and shake it and get it mixed in and then kind of slowly drink that over the course of the next quarter mile. I think because of that gap in the water stations, it ended up throwing off my fueling plan. And I really didn't eat my last gel, which I had planned on eating at an hour and a half until probably an hour and 45 minutes. And, you know, and at this point I've only got 10 minutes left of the race, but I thought, you know, Hey, I've already got it in my belt. Yeah, I don't necessarily know what my blood sugars are because I'm for some reason not pulling out my phone and checking my Dexcom data. So I thought, you know, it worked last week. Let's just go ahead and eat it and see, you know, at the end of the race, what my blood sugars turn out to be. And so, you know, I think about 15 minutes prior to the race ending, I went ahead and just finished another gel. I think at the, the long haul. So it's about 14 grams of carbs. And once again, looking at the Dexcom data too, that worked out pretty well. The delay in getting my electrolyte in the system turned out to continue to turn me down even after I had gotten that. So it was probably good that I ate that last gel because it gave me a little bit of the energy and I think the confidence to know like I'm probably not going to go low from now on to the finish line. So from mile 10 or 11 through 13.1, my blood sugar stayed pretty good and I ended up finishing at about 140. I was really happy with my time. I ended up finishing at 156.32, which was three and a half minutes below my goal time. So I was really happy about it. I can definitely attest to having a pacer and having somebody there run with you to kind of give you that motivation in the beginning part of the race to maintain pace and, you know, if not even get a little faster than your pace like we did. So that worked out pretty well. And I was excited to have him there and help me pace. A big shout out to Type 1 Run for supplying me and the South Alabama chapter with the resources we need in order to set up a group here and a chapter here. It's been incredible having, you know, all the platforms that they use in order to reach out to other type ones and just to be able to advocate for diabetes awareness at races like this. I had multiple people talk to me about my type one run shirt. And then after the race, I had a couple of people come up to me and say, oh, you know, hey, are you a type one diabetic? I see that, you know, you got a Dexcom on your stomach or you're wearing a pump and people were pretty excited um, to talk to me and then to hear about type one run. And I, you know, I got a couple of people interested in type one run and a couple more people interested in the podcast. So it was pretty cool. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening to episode five. And without further ado, here's my interview with Phil Graham. So I'm joined here today by Phil Graham. Phil is a competitive bodybuilder, sports nutritionist, fitness coach, personal trainer, a type one diagnosed at 16 and author of possibly the most successful diabetic specific fitness guide in the world the Diabetic Muscle and Fitness Guide. Uh, Phil, how are you doing? I'm great, big man. It's an absolute pleasure to come on to your show. I can't wait to share some knowledge bombs with you, so I'm very excited and looking forward to that. Yeah. So if there's anything you'd like to add to your introduction, please do that now because I'm sure – I know you're up to a lot of stuff. You have a lot of cool projects 
if you want to add anything, feel free. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I play a massive role in the UK fitness industry and the whole diabetic muscle and fitness project or movement, as you would call it, um, was set up around about towards the end of 2016 when I started writing the book. And I never had an intent to create a movement as big as the diabetic muscle and fitness uh, movement is. And I just wanted to write a book for my younger self to be able to uh, give people information that just wasn't available, uh, give them experiences, scenarios, and also bring the evidence-based information on nutrition, training, psychology, uh, exercise, all to the forefront in everyday human layman language. And I wrote the book. I took a year to write the book while I was still involved heavily within the UK fitness industry. And now the book has gone all over the world and reached various different corners. We're getting it translated in a couple of different languages this year. And on top of that, we've been able to create a really, really in-depth membership site that goes beyond the book. Um, the book is actually you know over 110,000 words. And I was being very conservative when I wrote the book. When it comes to understanding diabetes and the human body and building muscle and uh, eating well and managing health and managing adherence and all those kinds of things, it's just such a vast area that, you know, really needs a lot of in-depth explanation. And for people with diabetes who have a strong purpose or strong meaning with exercise and, you know, they find it as their refuge, they find it as their sense of belonging, they've got friends, they've they've got a mission to achieve with it, they love how it makes them feel, how it makes them look. Um, there's a lot of responsibilities and knowledge that needs to be acquired in order to get the best results out of uh, any sport or any fitness efforts and diabetes can hinder that if you don't know what you're doing if you don't know how to control it and my main mission with the diabetic muscle and fitness guide was to inspire hope and to educate and empower people with diabetes with the tools tactics strategies and information to be able to really make good quality choices with their food enjoy their exercise experience grow and develop within their exercise experience, whether that was from a competitive nature. My main focus was on weight training and body composition, um, but we have covered various different elements of cardiovascular exercise, and I think it's very important if you're trying to understand you know, how your body physiologically functions that you have an understanding of the different energy systems that are involved in running versus strength training, and you know how to adapt because let's face it, a lot of strength training athletes eventually turn to endurance, and a lot of endurance eventually turn to strength over periods of time. Absolutely. Some people go to the dark side. So, uh, you know, it's just a matter of uh, awareness. And, you know, when you understand how your body behaves, how blood glucose levels behave when you move into different training styles, how feeding patterns tend to change and macronutrient ratios and all sorts of things need to change you can get much more out of your exercise if you're getting much more out of your exercise you're much more fulfilled in life you're much more fulfilled you're much more present you get more to your relationships more to your business and it all interconnects and you know fitness for me for you for everyone on this podcast is a, a massive uh, focus in our lives that really distracts us from 
you know, the doom and gloom of diabetes in a nutshell. I mean, that's the whole reason why I got into uh, bodybuilding. The whole reason why I got into strength training was because of diabetes. If I didn't have diabetes, I wouldn't have ventured into any of these fitness um, goals of mine or bodybuilding or strength training goals of mine. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, body uh, Diabetes has directed me down that path. And it could be the same for a lot of the guys listening to this show. They might not be doing their level of fitness or participating in their particular sport due to diabetes so you know it's uh, definitely a lot and launching the whole community i mean we have people from all over the world we have we've just set the facebook group up under four months ago now and we let 10 people in a day and the interaction within that group is insane uh we have seven admins and we give out a serious amount of credible content actionable content not just information and the information that I've sort of prided myself on with the book and with the Diabetic Muscle and Fitness Guide is that it goes above and beyond just a general wishy-washy, diluted, weak information that you'll find anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and I was fed up with that whenever I was you know, a diabetic bodybuilder and I really wanted to get the most out of my muscle building. I was searching for information in every corner of the internet, looking to reach out to people, and nobody had answers. Nobody had clear quality information that was just going to help me get the results that I wanted. So I, I took it upon me and, you know, I spent a lot of years in university studying. I studied clinical nutrition and, and physiology, biochemistry, and got all my graduates and went and worked in the health service and at the same time as bodybuilding. And, you know, I, I actually grew a massive demand for my own personal training and coaching service to the point where I left the health service and that whole time, I was motivated and inspired to read as much knowledge and acquire as much information on physiology, nutrition, physical activity, stress management, diabetes medication, all the factors that allowed me to control diabetes and prevent it from beating me. So <clears throat> I developed a very, very strong knowledge base on all those. And I, I was inspired to learn all that from my own survival. And that's what was motivating me. So... That's a bit of a, a roundabout discussion on uh, yeah. where I'm with that, so we, we can take that anywhere. So before we go too far, I kind of wanted to mention that, yes, this is a running podcast, and I can already feel some of the listeners rolling their eyes. You know, They hear the words gym or weightlifting or bodybuilding or muscles, and they start to think like, ooh, you know, maybe this isn't the episode for me. But um, if, if you could talk real quick about why weight training and resistance training and cross training is so important for all athletes, including endurance athletes and kind of how that plays into diabetes management from your yeah. perspective. Okay. Well, well, first of all, we have to take into account individual context and preference and not everyone likes to run the roads. Not everyone likes to lift weights. Okay. It's as simple as that. And it's just like in exercise and you know, you'll see it in certain communities. You know, people get very charged and very polar to one side of what they're doing, and they think everyone else should do it. The reality is it's down to personal preference. What do you enjoy doing, and what can you sustain in doing? And endurance and weight training, they both have massive pros. They both have cons. But, again, you have to weigh it up from the perspective of what do you enjoy doing, what can you sustain for the rest of your life? And, again, what activity resonates with you? So, that's the first thing to get out of the way before you look at an exercise choice. And if you have an exercise goal, whether that's to run a particular distance in a period of time or to build a specific amount of muscle, 
or to achieve a certain lift, then your training needs to match that goal. It's called training specificity. So we need to lock that in. Now, when we look at strength training from the benefits from a diabetes perspective, we have to look, first of all, what type of diabetes we're talking about. But let's just go with type 1. When we look at strength training, muscle tissue is the greatest storage house for glucose. Okay? And the more muscle you have, the more glucose you can dispose of, the more glucose you can store in glycogen and glycogen for those of you that don't know is a storage molecule that basically uh, stores carbohydrate and the predominant use of glucose is used in weight training or anaerobic training whenever you contract a muscle fiber we have what we call glute 4 transporters which increase to the surface of the muscle cell and help dispose of glucose out of the blood so it can prove very useful for glucose management Okay, now there's a couple of considerations here and I'm going a little bit into the physiological side and sports physiology side. I'm not going to try to make this too complicated. No, that's perfect. I, I really did want to kind of tap into a discussion about glucose and how it's used in the body and okay, sure, know, sure. how glycogen is affected you know, by exercise yes. and insulin's role in that. Okay, so whenever a muscle fiber is contracted, we have these glucose transporters that come to the surface of the muscle cell uh and dispose of glucose so they can clear glucose out of the blood so they really help facilitate the use of blood glucose so from a diabetes perspective this can be very beneficial now we have to consider strength training in nature is a high intensity form of exercise when we lift weights we stimulate the production of counter regulatory hormones these counter-regulatory hormones, to name a few, cortisol, adrenaline, or an aphrine, growth hormone, blah, blah, blah. These increase blood glucose levels because they increase the release of glucose from the liver. Okay? Now, in somebody with type 1 diabetes who has no insulin present when they start weightlifting, what tends to happen is blood glucose, depending on what the, the pre-training blood glucose level is, say if it was in a normal range, and the strength training increases um, the production of these counter-regulatory hormones. <clears throat> As a result, blood glucose goes up. In people with type 1 diabetes, they don't have the insulin to recirculate that uh, glucose back into the cells. And sometimes when the, when the rate of production of glucose is greater from the liver than the rate of disposal from the muscle tissue, we then end up with hyperglycemia. So it's sometimes important to be able to correctively dose during strength training in order to accommodate um, hyperglycemia. Now, what can happen after the strength training bout whenever the stress hormones begin to reduce? The muscle tissue has still been stimulated. Glute 4 is still at the surface, and we can see a rapid decrease in blood glucose levels hours and hours after training when these counter-regulatory hormones have worn off. So you imagine if you increase your muscle mass, if you're constantly in a state of weight training four, five, six days a week, and you're using whole buying, big body movements, your muscle tissue is literally like a vacuum for glucose. And bearing in mind that the only times that you're maybe going to have problems and implications with blood glucose control is when you're in the middle of training, because training will put it up. And a lot of people don't understand why training puts it up. But it's because of the stressful response of those hormones and their production and their ability to stimulate the release of glucose from the liver. So we need to bear that in mind. Strength training can actually be highly beneficial for diabetic control, but also highly disadvantageous from the perspective of it increases the kind of regulatory hormones that can mess up with control 
And most people, when they go into exercise, think their blood glucose levels are going to dip. But when they strength train, they go up. Okay. What's the end result? You know, if you're talking two weeks, six weeks, you know, six months down the road, what would be the end result of a long-term strength training program on ideally what would be the effect on average blood sugars? Well, bear in mind, if your strength's increasing and you're lifting more weights and heavier loads, you're increasing the stress in your system. So it only gets worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. But again, it all depends on how much circulating insulin you've got in your system from your previous meals. It all depends on how accurately you're tracking data. You know, back whenever I was strength training, I tracked data obsessively. I tracked data to the point whereby I, I could predict what my blood glucose level was going to be. And I kept all the variables consistent. I kept my nutrition consistent. I kept my sleep consistent. I kept my training schedule consistent. I kept my calories consistent, my macronutrients consistent. And I was able to pinpoint stressful events. I was able to pinpoint illnesses. I was able to pinpoint times of the day whenever blood glucose levels would behave differently. And when, when you come to talk about data tracking, I mean, I, I filled books and books with blood glucose levels and timings and reports and notes. And when you do that over a period of time, you become intuitively trained as to how your blood glucose levels behave. Do you still uh, do that or are you on, are you on a much, CGM now? No, I, I, I still use finger prick. I prick. I prick once to three times a day. Yeah. Yesterday was the first day that my blood glucose level was the highest it's ever been in about three years. It was 17.6. And it's the first time I've actually picked up a little bit of a throat infection. You can hear it. Um, and I, I never go above 10 millimoles per liter um, ever. And 17 was a big hit to me. It absolutely floored me. Um, it came in the middle of the night. And I'm still looking into some of the reasons why I came. Um, obviously, with Christmas period, sometimes we can slacken up the nutrition a little bit, slacken up the lifestyle a little bit. And I've had a lot of business stuff going on. Um, That'd be like, like a 300 for us in America. Yeah. So, yeah, multiply by 80. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, there's been, um, you know, a, a lot of changes um, in my lifestyle over time. And uh, like I say, I, I, like I, I obsess over keeping my blood glucose levels in range. I actually put a post up yesterday on Instagram about the principles and philosophies of diabetic muscle and fitness and what I stand for. And the first one was obsessed over perfect blood glucose control. And then I had a few trolls on the post that were saying obsessed is a really unhealthy word. It's not yeah. good. And I'm like, you know, guys, well, you know, you're successful when you, when you have your first troll. Say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like, let's just put that into perspective. Okay. Don't be obsessive over your blood glucose levels. Well then, well, you tell me like how you're going to be successful in life and enjoy your life when, you know, you get glaucoma or, you know, you lose the feeling in the nerves in your hand because over time, the time that you spent in the high blood glucose level when you could have corrected it could have been reversed. Oh, yeah. I mean, and if you're having, if you're only having one 300 or 17 every now and then, I mean, it sounds like you're doing great. I mean, I don't yeah, – I mean, it is important you, to stress over it and to, to make those small changes so that – you can make sure that doesn't happen again, but yeah, I mean, one three hundred in a in a stone full of uh, of blood sugars is not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the reality is you're never going to get it one hundred percent perfect. If you do, if you get it one hundred percent perfect, you know that that that's not possible. There's so many dynamic factors with life that are going to affect that. Yeah, you never. should go to the doctor because you might not be a diabetic anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually doing my my life lesson list for two thousand and seventeen, and one of the factors that I'm putting in it is. Never look at the reading on your blood glucose level on, on your meter or your CGM as your self-worth. 
It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a number for feedback Absolutely. that you need to respect Absolutely. and you need to work with. And I think a lot of people will look at their blood glucose levels readings and go, I'm a failure. I'm going to die. I can't control my diabetes. What's the point? The number is simply there for you to react and respond to quickly. And the quicker you react, the less time you spend in either of those zones, the better your health is going to be and the better your outcome is going to be. So I know we've gone a little bit off tangent there, but back into the endurance style aspect. Endurance training obviously is a lot less intense is in nature of it's a lot more aerobic and again the fuel utilization is different we have a mixture of you know carbs and uh, fat and some protein sometimes it really depends on how the overall calorie balance of the individual and what we tend to see with it due to the lower levels of uh, counter regulatory hormones because it's a less stressful activity is we see that blood glucose levels tends to drop faster so there is a different management aspect of blood glucose levels that need to be taken into account and again, there are various eating strategies. There are various management strategies that need to be incorporated into that. For example, if an individual is, say, sitting at 10 millimoles per liter, um, what will that be in uh, milligrams per deciliter? That'll be... Uh, yeah, and so that would be 180 for us here in America. Yeah, so you know, you could start exercising at that and then move into your endurance-based activity and allow that hyperglycemia to sort of dissolve itself out whilst you participate in the exercise as the muscle tissue is going through the locomotion and the range. Um, so, I mean, you know, there, 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 there's definitely benefits to it. The calorie expenditure out of it is um, most definitely uh, a benefit for an anti-obesity factor. And, you know, if you are holding too much body fat and you have got your diabetes, the obesity is you know, one health implication or factor that is going to cause you an issue. So I'm always about minimizing all these aspects and, you know, looking at it collectively from all the philosophies that we cover in diabetic muscle and fitness, you know, obsess over perfect control, stay lean, um, manage your calorie intake, train regularly with an activity that you can enjoy and sustain, move well outside of that. And I mean, mobility work. A lot of you endurance guys, same with a lot of the weights guys, end up with a lot of mobility issues. Yeah, a lot especially of, in the hips. The hips yeah, and the thighs and quads. A lot of tight tissues with the heel strike and all that kind of stuff. So on top of that, manage stress, manage recovery. And on top of that, being able to, um, you know, also as well, get accountability, get mentorship, get coaching, have deadlines. All of those things are really, really important for being successful in sport or getting something out of it. And, you know, you know, even from being in the group that we have, it's amazing to see how many people complain about their diabetes, complain about their exercise experience, but do nothing to learn about it, do nothing to reach out and ask questions. Um, with diabetes, there is a choice to take ownership, understand the condition, and be able to look at all the elements that you can control and then surrender the rest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I surrendered my diabetes a long time ago. I rarely even call myself diabetic. I like to say I can be diabetic when I want to be diabetic. I don't think about it. I don't think about the comp. The way I see it is if I manage my diabetes, all those factors and all those elements, I'm not going to end up dealing with the complications. And that's a much better attitude to have than saying, I'm going to go blind. I'm going to lose a foot. I'm going to lose a leg. I'm going to you know, get kidney failure, organ failure. If you think that's going to happen, 
your mind, what your mind holds manifests. And, you know, I have a firm belief that if I can keep my blood glucose levels as tight as possible, I'm not going to be subject to any of that stuff because there would be no reason for it to happen. Yeah. I've always heard that well-controlled diabetes is the leading cause of nothing. And I want to say I stole that from somewhere, but I can never reference where. Yeah. I mean, 100%. You know, if your blood glucose levels are within range, the bulk of your life, because you've obsessed over control and, and educated yourself, you, you you can do whatever you want. I mean, I was a competitive bodybuilder in my day. And to reach the level of conditioning and the training volume and the calorie intake that I was on, to go on stage at that with diabetes was, I was told that I was foolish. I was told that I was never going to be able to do it. I did it. I proved a lot of people wrong. I did it comfortably. I did it with knowledge. I did it with experience. But again, not many people like me existed. Not many people had that goal. Not many people had that vision. And, you know, any young guy that's listening that has a goal of doing something major in endurance, don't be afraid of diabetes holding you back. Diabetes will hold you back if you're uneducated and you haven't invested in yourself to be able to learn. If you haven't invested in a good quality mentor, you haven't experimented, you haven't being able to evaluate your failures, your successes, and seeing those as data as well. Um, those are so important. And so I have to ask, because as a competitive bodybuilder, I'm sure you spent hours doing fat-burning sessions to trim for competitions, correct? Well, n- not necessarily. I mean, with, with bodybuilding, uh, the main exercise stimulus is strength training. Strength yeah. training's purpose is to stimulate muscle growth, end of what burns body fat is energy balance through food and through physical activity outside of the gym. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. A weight training session doesn't really burn up that, sm- that many calories. Yeah. A 45-minute weight training session is nothing in comparison to what you burn in the other 23 hours in a day. Yeah. So knowing your physical activity level, knowing your calorie intake over that period of time is essential in order to allow you to effectively put yourself in an energy deficit to, to lose body fat yeah. where you're burning off more than you take in, but not burning off too much that you interfere with performance or you induce catabolism, loss of muscle. So you ever, did you ever um, used to train without active insulin in your body? Cause I'm uh, on a yeah. pump. So, and I know a lot of listeners are on just short acting insulin. And so we kind of have to balance that, you know, that thought of, okay, well, do I want to go into this run or into this workout with zero active insulin um, or, you know, a half a unit or a unit, whatever well, your sensitivity is. Yeah. Well, the strength training aspect would be different from the perspective of that whenever you start lifting weights and start doing high intensity interval training or weight training, blood glucose levels are going to increase. Yeah. And when blood glucose levels increase, you're going to get hyperglycemia if you've got no insulin in the bank. So it's extremely important that you fit that in and consider that with your kind of activity where there's no counter regulatory hormones then active insulin may be slightly more risky because what you may tend to find, again, it's highly inter-individual, but if you're producing a lot of glucose out of the liver and you've got no active insulin there to accommodate that, that glucose could potentially be dissolved or utilized or disposed of when you're running. Mm-hmm. And it's all a matter of making sure is the output from the liver being matched by the disposal of that of the muscle tissue and the yeah. body. But if you don't if, have active insulin, you might not necessarily have access to any of that energy that your liver's pushing out, right? Not necessarily, no, because depending on the on the level of existing blood glucose level, if you're mechanically moving muscle tissue and you've got GLUT4 coming to the surface, 
and there's no counter-regulatory hormones, the glucose will be independently transported into the muscle and utilized as fuel. Say, for example, at a blood glucose reading of, uh, say, 10, we, you know, to 10 millimoles per liter, and they have had a food meal three and a half hours before, and 10 is sort of what they're sitting at, we could potentially expect that blood glucose level to go down to the point whereby they reach, say, say five millimoles per liter. And then the body's going to realize, right, okay, we're potentially going low here. And again, certain people with diabetes have different responses. There's a glucagon response, a counter-regulatory response, whereby the body will kick out glucose from the liver to prevent the body from going low. Some people with diabetes have a stronger response. Some people have a very poor response. And if there's a drug in place and there's too much insulating circulating, that will drive glucose levels down even further. But if there's minimal insulin there um, and it's a stressful event of the end of the race or coming to the end of the race, then those kinds of regulatory hormones can actually push glucose levels up a little bit. And when they're pushed up a little bit, then that glucose is then facilitated and used by the muscles that are moving by the GLUT4 translocation. GLUT4 is a glucose transporter 4, which comes to the surface of the muscle cell and takes up carbohydrate independently of insulin, independently. And if there's no counter-regulatory hormones there to to increase glucose output from the liver above and beyond what is being disposed of, then there's no issue. Mm-hmm. It's put in. Now, if the person gets really active and is really going really going crazy and they're burning off a lot of glucose and the liver can't keep up with that production because they've maybe been in a hypocaloric diet or they burnt through all their food, and they are going to go hypo. And the last time I checked when I went hypo, I couldn't run. Yeah. How far, okay. what's the farthest you've ever run in your life? <laughs> That's a good, I, I cycle, uh, I cycle a couple of miles. I don't, I don't run because of my body weight. Yeah. Uh, I don't run. It would be detrimental to my bone health. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't run. So uh, I walk or I cycle or I swim. Yeah. What's the farthest you've ever ridden? <laughs> Uh, I've only about 10 miles. Again, I'd be, it'd be very important that I didn't. Um, that's now. Back when I was bodybuilding, I didn't really uh, didn't really cycle for a long period of time because it was uh, not the training specificity that I needed to focus on for the end goal that I wanted. Yeah, of course. It would interfere with the fatigue management and fatigue load and, and disrupt the strength training recovery, uh, which I didn't want. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you had an endurance athlete in front of you and they were going to ask you about Okay, Phil, what do I need to eat in order to maximize performance and to prevent injury as a type 1 diabetic? Kind of what is kind of the some of the the principles that you mention on your other platforms about nutrition for a type 1 okay. diabetic With, without obviously giving, you know, medical advice to people, but kind of what is the general philosophy that you that you stand by? Well, if we're going to look at nutrition from a general evidence-based perspective, we first of all need to consider the training volume we need to consider the body composition goals. So let's take into account that the individual is a healthy body weight, is doing an average amount of endurance training, and wants to know how to nourish themselves properly. Well, we got to look at the fundamentals. We first of all have to look at adherence. So we got to look at a diet that's sustainable. We got to look at a dietary protocol that an individual can manage and sustain for the rest of their life, rather than putting them on a very restricted diet that is potentially going to leave them frustrated, potentially going to lead them to uh, complete uh, destructive behaviors like binge eating or going crazy on certain foods. Like a total relapse. 
they get yeah, total relapse, which is then going to inevitably end up in hyperglycemia and weight gain. So we have to look at a, at a, a diet that is easy to stick to, that includes foods of various different colors, textures, tastes, whatever. The more broader the diet, the more broader the nutrient diversity. And nutrients are absolutely essential for people with diabetes because they tend to use up a lot more with episodes of hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia. Now, we need to look at energy balance. So we need to look at the amount of energy that we're taking in. Are we taking in enough energy to support our performance over a prolonged period of time and prevent us gaining body fat, which is going to impair or implicate the sporting performance? So we've got adherence. We've got energy balance, and you'll be able to measure your energy balance based off your activity by looking at your body weight. Ideally, if the individuals have a healthy body weight, they want their body weight to be staying in and around the same over the period of the year. If they're looking at their body weight whenever they enter a race, what they'll find is their body weight will be lighter after a race due to dehydration and due to the use and facilitation of stored fuels. And again, by the time those fuel tanks or glycogen or muscle cells are refilled up with carbohydrate, weight can come back up. Carbohydrates are an osmolite for water. They attract water and they can retain weight. Okay. So if you look at weight, body weight data over a period of time, you're going to be able to ascertain whether or not you're on your way down or you're on your way up. And again, you can also back that up by physical appearance. We then got to look at the essential nutrients. We got to establish essential fatty acid needs, omega-3 and omega-6. We then have to establish essential protein needs for amino acids. Why? Essential nutrients are not produced in the body and they're needed through the diet. They need it exogenously. Okay, you need to take them in from external sources. So on top of that, once we've established protein, once we've established essential fatty acid intakes for fish oil or omega-3, we then need to look at carbohydrate. And that will be personal preference as to how much is needed. Some individuals perform very well on it. Some individuals perform slightly less. And again, after that, we then got to look at timing of the meals based on appetite, based on hunger, based on ability and access to eat. If I'm working a nine to five and I only have, I don't even have lunch at 11 and half one, I got to be able to work with that rather than eating at my desk. Okay. Then we have to look within that, within that adherence window of setting up a nutrition plan. We have to look at flexibility. So how am I going to be able to eat out socially? How am I going to be able to um, accommodate the calories that I take for hypos? So again, looking at a proportion of your calorie overall intake and dictating certain proportions of that for social events, dictating certain proportions for hypo events, accounting for that, cutting back on certain days, eating more on other days. Again, I think everyone, if they're really taking their sport seriously, should be measuring their physical activity, measuring their calorie intake, measuring their rest, doing all of those things. If you've met all those requirements, then... Uh, just on a side note on essential nutrients again around about 20 to 30 grams of fiber from mixed soluble and insoluble fibers and you've got a collective range of fruits vegetables dairy wide range of products that food sources whole minimally processed food sources you are going to cover a lot of your nutrient demands nutrient needs and at the same time be able to incorporate some processed stuff if you really want to because i'm sure you got you guys have a massive energy expenditure and, you know, the convenience, the ability to have um, a little bit of junk food might be uh, advantageous from a diet adherence perspective, instant performance boost, but being able to understand and manage your blood glucose levels around that. But again, that comes over time. So 
Those are all key principles and elements of setting up a diet. How much carbohydrate you need is going to be highly dependent on how big you are, how thin you are, how much body fat you have, whether you want to lose body fat at the same time, whether you want to gain body fat, whether you want to stay the same weight. And it all depends on how well you manage your diabetes. There's a whole range of factors there. So that needs to be time-tested, tracked, recorded, evaluated, tweaked, and changed over time. So that kind of plays into your principles. I think you mentioned them earlier. And I know they're on their website. Um, you've listed sleep, nutrition, training, stress management. And then I think earlier you talked a little bit about diabetic management and st- stressing over perfect glucose control. And so if you could I kind of. I, I, I wouldn't say stressing, I'd say responding rapidly. Yeah. And so there's another list that I had pulled off of your Instagram that I thought was pretty cool. And I was curious as to where you came up with them, but it's the four traits of diabetes superstars. Yeah, you listed persistence, curiosity, adaptiveness, and the willingness to help others. Where do those come from? Come from a lot of people that I've spoken to who have mastered a diabetic control, including myself. Absolutely. Yeah, that I just thought those were pretty cool. That persistence, because I think, at least for me, you know, every day is a different day, and some days you have good control, and some days it's not so great. But you still have to wake up that next day and face the fact that you're still a diabetic and you have to tackle that day just as hard as you did the day before, even though you failed a couple of times. You know? Yeah, well, looking at the perspective of a diabetic superstar, I mean, the reality is we're all human. We're all open to hyperglycemia. But at the same time, we don't stress. We don't fret. We look at why that hyperglycemia has been caused, what we can do to improve upon it the next time around. And in that, be able to be highly adaptive to a change in circumstance or environment or diet or training regime. And then also being able to live that out, practice it, get the results with their blood glucose work. And then also help individuals that are struggling and helping inspire them and giving them a good kick up the ass sometimes when they need it and not being afraid to say that. At the end of the day, I want to enjoy my life. I want to live my life. I love my life. I don't want to have anything interfering in that that I would have regretted controlling. And that's that, That's how I live my life. That's how I manage my diabetes. That's how I see it. Diabetes is not an issue in my life because I have dedicated the time, the investment into myself, the most important investment you'll ever make. And I have, you know, when you look at the information that we put out, it's not information that's just put out for the sake of it. It's information that's, that takes into account a lot of factors it's evidence-based. It's based, you know, off a lot of experience. It, 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 you know, it's balanced. It's got a lot of we, – we, we don't say anything in absolutes. We don't come across and, you know, say this needs to be done, that needs to be done. We're very clear with the fact that it's highly inter-individual. You need to have accountability. You need to adapt. You know, there's just so many good elements to the uh, quality uh, diabetic mind that – that really need need to be activated in a lot of people. Absolutely. And so a quote from your website, and I had pulled it to ask you about it, but it says, don't live and train with diabetes alone. And I think it, it talks a little bit about joining your movement in terms of, you know, not living and training with diabetes alone. And so where's the best place for people to join, you know, the diabetic muscle and fitness movement? I mean, the best place for people to join is our Facebook group. It's free. We post every single day on it. We respond to all your questions on it, and we give it a lot. We give it a lot of content for free, you know, a lot of videos, 
you know, if you go on like any of the eBooks, the books, I mean, the, the, the information in there is so dense. And, you know, you've, you've seen all the YouTube videos that we put out. They're clear, they're concise. And we have a training lab that has hundreds of hours of information in there. And I mean, the information is insane. I have a great guy that has teamed up with me and who is the facilitator of our coaching service, which is launching in January. John Pemberton, he's the head diabetes uh, registered dietitian in Birmingham Children's Hospital. He's type one himself, incredibly intelligent, incredibly passionate. Um, and he was a reader of the book and reached out to me. And we, we have, we, like, I can't serve everyone myself. And I want to be able to attract like-minded, inspirational type ones that have the credibility and the knowledge to be able to inspire change and help improve the quality of people's lives. And, you know, diabetes is a, a condition that if you have it and, for example, yourself, how many people in your local community have diabetes? You could count it on your one hand. Yeah. And, you know, the ability to reach out into a group, brain dump your ideas and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this today. Please help. I need a question on this. Please help. And to be able to have intelligent people that have experience, knowledge, credibility respond to that is a, a massive asset to the quality of your life. And that's why we created the community. The community, you know, like I said, like we're, we're, we're introducing knowledge and information here that's not covered in the standard healthcare uh, practice. And you know what? Anybody that we, we are so balanced and evidence-based in everything that we put across that we're not claiming to be gurus or anything like that. We're very scientific in our approach and understand that there are responsibilities. We understand that there are uh, certain things that cannot be said in absolutes. We understand that it's highly inter-individual and that there's a massive need and incorporation and cohesiveness for a healthcare professional to work alongside you with this information. Um, so that's that's you know really really important to to stress that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's always my caveat is, you know, please listen to the podcast and learn something to help your training. But of course, always consult with your doctor before changing anything about your diet or your insulin or your exercise, because they're going to know the most about your medical background and they're going to make probably the best recommendations to help implement changes that you want to make in order to get to your goal, whether it's you know, bodybuilding or running or triathlon. So we have a lot of healthcare professionals that reach out to us every single week and um, praising the book. The book's been raised at a number of conferences across the world. And, um, you know, we're serving people and the emails that come in, the daily gratitude that I receive from members of the diabetic muscle and fitness training lab. And, um, you know, when people start putting up stuff and saying this information has changed my life, it's changed the way I run my day. It's changed the way I think about diabetes. I don't really need to say any more beyond that. Um, and, you know, my main mission is to inspire hope, educate, and empower, and end suffering in people with diabetes as best I can. Where's the best place to buy the book? Uh, you can get it on Amazon, or you can go to diabeticmuscleandfitness.com, sign up to the mailing list. We give it a ton of free content. There's loads of articles on there. Um, if you want to join the training lab, you just go to the website, follow through with all the instructions. You'll be in there for months uh, there's everything from CGM guides, how to bullish your insulin for mixed macronutrient meals and understand all the science and nitty gritty behind it. 
how to set up your own training programs with diabetes, how to manage things. We're very much focused on strength training at the moment, but we will be incorporating a lot of endurance stuff over the course of time. Um, I just have to uh, delve into a little bit more research with certain things that I want to put out first and, and things like that uh, to give you guys the, the most broadest understanding and actionable tools, strategies, and, and information that you can take. Yeah, Phil, that's absolutely perfect. And for anyone who doesn't follow Phil online, he puts out an incredible amount of content that's super useful for anyone who's wanting to train really in any types. As a runner, I know like I almost stalked all of his posts on Instagram because I was right when I got diagnosed, I think it was one of the first sources that I was able to use that was everything that I was trying to find. Because like you had mentioned, when you get diagnosed, unless you know where to look, you're not going to find the content that you need. You're not going to find the thing that's going to make you feel more comfortable waking up the next morning and hammering the weights or hitting the road and setting a new, you know, personal record in whatever distance you want to run. And so, yeah, for anyone who has any questions about, you know, running in diabetes or lifting with diabetes or cross-training with diabetes, Phil's website and Phil's content is absolutely incredible. But uh, so, Phil, before I let you go, I have uh, some tempo talk questions, which are like some random fun questions, and then I'll, I'll let you go, and I appreciate all your time. Thank you, brother. So favorite music, guilty pleasure music <laughs> that you listen to while you're working out? I like a bit of uh, dance music, a little bit of house, a little bit of trance, uh, something a little bit fast tempo. Um, I like to study to sort of background, sort of jazz, sort of piano uh, type stuff. Favorite post-competition meal? Favorite post-competition meal would have been pizza. Yeah. What's on it? Uh, garlic, chicken, mushrooms, olives, pepper, red onion, uh, or oregano. All that's, kind of that's the worst. <laughs> Real sugar or artificial sweetener? Uh, artificial sweetener. Yeah, that's. What, yeah. I think I, I get a lot of mixed messages on that. So, um, yeah, I mean, like you know, just to dispel any myths on that, the majority of people that talk about artificial sweetener and about it being unhealthy and bad for health have no understanding of the actual research behind it, and the majority of the research is done in animals. Um, and when you translate that to a human model, the dosages that would need to be consumed from the perspective of it being poisonous or toxinous or toxin, uh, toxic really are far fetched and are unachievable. Yeah. Um, I've had a few people again that have ignorantly, you know, pulled posts and stuff. You know, a diet soft drink will not spike your blood glucose, it will settle a sweet tooth and it will allow you to control your body weight. Um, because it's it's zero in calories, and you know people saying that they full sugar soft drinks are better. I mean that's just moronic. Um, you know if if you feel that way about sweeteners right now, ask yourself where did you get that evidence? Where did you get that information beyond a article or post? And did you go and look at the research? Did you dissect the research techniques? And the answer to that is nine times out of ten, no. Absolutely, yeah. That's I think the most well-versed response I've had so far. So <laughs> something you wish everyone knew about diabetes. It's a massive responsibility and takes up a large chunk of cognitive process and, and life. Favorite food you would eat a huge portion of if you were not a diabetic. It, it can be pizza again. It might be pizza. Probably chocolate, milk chocolate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and then the last thing is something you would tell to someone who is either a diabetic and wants to start exercising or has been exercising and just got diagnosed with type one diabetes. 
invest every amount of energy and time that you can into learning about your condition and all the elements that are involved in controlling it. That's perfect, man. So where can people follow you? Where's the best place to keep up with diabetic muscle and fitness and Phil Graham? The best place to follow me is diabeticmuscleandfitness.com. Look us up on Facebook, like the page. We have an amazing group. Get involved, quest to join. We only accept 10 people a day. Um, we get a lot of people that request to join. Um, and also on Instagram, Diabetic Muscle and Fitness. I'm also on Instagram, Phil Graham. My main Phil Graham Facebook page and website is primarily geared towards the mainstream fitness industry and personal trainers that I work with. And so it, it's not relevant to a lot of you guys. And the Diabetic Muscle and Fitness site is definitely a, a go-to. And while there may be the majority of information on weight training, some of the nutrition information, lifestyle information, diabetes information is invaluable. Certainly. Well, Phil, thank you so much for being on the show and taking time out of your day to talk to us runners. No problem. And thank you very much for taking the time to record the podcast. I know how much time these take as well. Um, and I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Um, and thank you very much to all the listeners as well for listening this far. So thank you, buddy. Hey, guys, that wraps up my interview with Phil. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Episode 5 of the Diabetic Running Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes of the show brought to your phone every Monday. Also, if you'd like to, leave a review. It helps tremendously with our rankings for the show and is amazing for spreading the word of the podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with me, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can find me on the diabeticrunningpodcast.com. And on all those platforms, you can find me at the Diabetic Running Podcast. If you think you or someone you know would be a great interviewee for the show, make sure to reach out to me at the diabeticrunningpodcast.com. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>